Finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. Shards of glass can cut and wound or magnify a vision. Mosaic celebrates brokenness and the beauty of being brought together. Our survival, the vitality of the planet, depends on mental flexibility and emotional acuity. Hands raised, hands put to work, we can improvise, we can create without a map, and we don't have to live in isolation. The gift of an attentive life is the ability to recognize patterns and find our way toward a unity built on empathy. Empathy becomes the path that leads us from the margins to the center of concern. The pattern is the thing. The beauty made belongs to everyone. We all bow. Finding beauty in a broken world becomes more than the art of assemblage. It is the work of daring contemplation that inspires action. Shattered. The broken pieces of a world torn apart by war and a planet devastated by greed and corruption lie scattered at our feet. In her new book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, poet and naturalist Terry Tempest Williams brings together the tattered fragments of our times into a literary mosaic of peace and reconciliation. From the charred ruins of the Twin Towers and the Pentagon on 9-11, to the endangered prairie dogs of Utah, to the creation of a memorial to the tens of thousands who died in the Rwandan genocide, Williams constructs an image of hope for a brighter future, a journey toward a time when human beings in the planet they inhabit coexist with love and compassion. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. Building things of beauty from the broken pieces of what were once whole is a recurring theme throughout your book. What is the role of art in the process of healing after a tragic event? It's such a good question, and I'm going to tell you a story. When Lily Ye created a team of what she called Barefoot Artists, it consisted of Alan Jacobson, a designer from Philadelphia, Megan Morris, a graduate student from New Mexico, and myself. She asked me if I would be her scribe. We landed in Rwanda. We went immediately to see USAID, um, which is an NGO, an arm of the State Department, the American government, to inform them of what we wanted to do, which was work with the Rugerero Genocide Survivors Village, just outside the town of Giseni on the border of the Congo and Rwanda, to help build a genocide memorial for the safe placement of their beloved's bones. When we went in, Lily presented the project. She showed the design, the architecture, the plan, and the head of USAID was so patronizing, I have to say. He said, this is a very nice art project, but Rwanda needs food. And that was his statement. And I never will forget Lily looking at him and saying, there are many ways to feed a person, and perhaps first you start with the soul. It was such a brave statement. And she was talking about how beauty is not peripheral, that art is not optional, but in fact, a survival for strategy. And in Rwanda, in one of the most broken of all places that now is engaged in a period of reconstruction, art, beauty, 
is part of that vision that is coming from President Paul Kagame, from the ministers, and most importantly, from the people themselves. You said that the events of 9-11-2001 took away your ability to make poetry. You were yourself apparently broken. What has the writing of this book done to help you remake yourself? Again, that's such an astute question. It's true. You know, I was in Washington, D.C. on September 11th. I think if I had been home in the desert in Castle Valley, James, I wouldn't have even known what it what would have happened. We don't have a television. We barely get radio. But there, you saw how quickly the district shut down. You saw how rapidly the rhetoric of our country changed to one of fear and terror and blame, rather than introspection and reflection and compassion. In that moment, I made a decision to speak. And I think it was as a result of disorientation, you know, and Manipulation. I remember hearing Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska saying, it's not if we're going to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but when. And I heard myself saying there are many forms of, in, of terrorism, and environmental degradation is one of them. You know, later on, um, when Dick Cheney was creating a, our national energy policy behind closed doors in Utah, it was a ground-thumping experience where 40,000-pound thumper trucks were roaring across wilderness study areas, Dome Plateau, seven miles outside of Arches National Park. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times describing that. I was writing more for newspapers and magazines than anything, just trying to create a conversation. What scared me after a year of this was that I had lost my poetry, that my words had become as brittle and hollow as those I was opposing. I was in Maine. We were on family vacation. I was desperate to retrieve that which I had lost. I went down to the waters and call it a prayer or a plea. And I, I said to the ocean, I'll be honest, uh, give me one wild word and I promise I will follow. And the word that came into my heart, the word that I heard, the word that rolled back from the sea was mosaic. And I followed that. And I could never have imagined that this plea, this question of a word would have led me to Ravenna, Italy, to see those bejeweled ceilings made out of glass, that it would have led me to my, it would have taken me home to the Colorado Plateau, the grassland plateau inhabited by prairie dogs, that I would have seen it as an ecological mosaic, broken and beautiful. I never would have imagined that it would have ultimately led me to Rwanda, creating a genocide memorial, mosaics, literally out of the rubble of war. Over the last eight years, you've done a lot of very interesting things, things that you just mentioned. How are these things, seemingly unrelated activities, come together to form the core of your new book? You know, I never know what I'm doing. I don't know if you feel that way, but I just trust my instincts and the questions that lead me forward. How are they related? You know, that's really a good question. They're related to me in ways that are both inexplicable and obvious in my own patterned mind. You know, it could be argued, you know, why on earth would you have a discussion of the peril, the plight of a prairie dog and a genocide in Rwanda, the genocide in Rwanda? And for me, it's about seeing the world whole. 
It's recognizing that the extermination of a species, the extermination of a people, are predicated on the same impulses. Prejudice, cruelty, ignorance, and arrogance. Circling around issues of power and justice. And I honestly believe, James, that until we can begin to see the world whole, even wholly, we will be relegated, consigned, um, imprisoned in a fractured, fragmented world that that ultimately becomes a seedbed of war, over and over repeating this cycle. We know that the world is interconnected. We know that it's the pattern of things that illuminate our relationship to other. And this is what I'm interested in, both as a writer and, most importantly, as a human being. The semblances of things, um, how we respond to one another, how we are present with one another, and how we bear witness to the miraculous nature of life, even in its brokenness. Prairie dogs in Utah, Tutsi victims of genocide in Rwanda. I mean, in a broken world, is there really any difference between the ratification of a species and the murder of millions of human beings? You know, I think most people would say yes, and my family would be among those people. You know, I grew up in the American West. It's my home. It's it's where, it's what I'm in the service of. And, you know, we're, we're talking in Wisconsin, the birthplace of Aldo Leopold's ideas. And when he wrote The Land Ethic as part of a San Candy Almanac, he talked about, are we big enough to expand our notion of community to include all life forms, plants, animals, rocks, rivers, and human beings? So I would say yes, you know, the extermination of prairie dogs, the murder of a million Tutsis, it is the same thing in the sense that it is a violation of life. There would be those that would say a prairie dog is a, is a vermin, a varmint. And I would say yes, and the Tutsis were called by the Interhamwe, the Hutu extremists, cockroaches and vermin. And how we speak about one another ultimately leads to how we treat one another be it an animal or a human being. And actually, we're all animals. You know, we're all part of this ecological uh, quivering web. And I don't find that demeaning to our species. I find it an elevation of our species, that we're all made of the same stuff, part of this same beautiful blue planet called Earth. Now, you worked with the Chinese-American mosaicist Lily Wei. Yay. Uh, to build the uh, Rwandan Genocide Memorial and um, later rest more than 30,000 victims of the horrible event there. How has this memorial as a mosaic made from the broken pieces of the war help you to sp- help to speed the, the process of healing there? You know, I can't know that because I'm, I'm not Rwandan and I don't know what it means to the people. And I should say we visited many mass graves one of which, as you mentioned, 30,000 people were murdered there. Nayamata, 10,000 people were murdered there. In the village of Rugorero, I don't know how many people were killed. What we know is that there are hundreds of families whose bones are now interned at this memorial from the village. There are bodies and bones that are still being recovered. And part of the Gachacha process, which is similar to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, 
Only the gachacha process in Rwanda is from the ground up. It's a Kinyarwanda word, meaning grass courts. That's going on now, once a week, in every town, in every village, in every city in Rwanda. The perpetrators of the genocide come forward. They tell their story before seven judges and the community that they're a part of. And they have to say, tell, who they killed, how they killed them, and where their bones are. And the community, the family members listen to those perpetrators. And if they believe that those prisoners are full of remorse and are properly sorry, then they will agree to fold them back into the community. If they feel that they are lying or not telling the truth, then they go back into prison. I think this process in itself, very complicated, but it has been a very powerful healing tool. And I would say that the gachacha process, along with this kind of transparency, along with the proper burial of these bones, of these people, families, children, is part of the healing process that Rwanda is, is undergoing. A proper burial, a proper uh, ritual, always, I think, assists that, that healing process of grief. While you were in Rwanda, you met a young man who was your translator, and his name was uh, Louis Gakumba. And tell me a little bit about him and how he has become special to you. Louis Gakumba, uh, we met, he was 22 years old, a genocide survivor, Tutsi, uh, a member of a family of seven children, born in the Congo, in Mississippi. Um, his mother was Tutsi, Mama Odia, who was part of the first genocide in 1959. Many people don't realize that this is an ongoing pattern with, with seeds that go back to colonialism and racial preferences. He was our translator. He was working for a South African mining company, taught himself English, speaks six languages, a beautiful human being. Uh, Louis quickly became our eyes, our ears, our hearts as this extraordinarily intuitive translator. And I remember one day I said, Louis, tell me what you're learning through this act of translation. This was his first experience with this. And he said, I'll tell you tomorrow, which is typical of Louis. You know, he's very measured and um, thoughtful. The next day he jumps into the Red Cross vehicle and he said, I'll tell you what I've learned. And he said, translation is easy when you're doing it with people you love because it's more than tra trading words. And I think that idea of translation being something more akin to the spirit than a dictionary is very, very potent. Um, because of the war, Louis was not able to finish school. He was only able to complete a third grade education. He had a strong desire to come to America to go to school. He wants to work for the United Nations because he feels it failed them so in Rwanda. He wants to go into diplomacy. Um, we were able to find him a scholarship at the Salt Lake Community College. The school was very excited to have him there. There's a very strong African community. And we were thrilled. What we didn't realize is how difficult it would be to secure a visa. Um, because of the United States State Department, because of the War on Terror, all these interconnections. Um, he had been denied his visa three times, our government saying that his ties to Rwanda weren't strong enough because 
he didn't have money, he didn't have a bank account, he didn't, I should say he didn't have enough money, and he didn't own land. And I remember writing a letter to the consulate saying, but let's look at what he does have, dignity, compassion, a sense of service, translating for all of these NGOs. He was translating for one of the ministers of culture, uh, Joseph Habaneza. That did not move them. What eventually moved the State Department was Louis himself, making endless pilgrimages up to Kigali, a 10-hour journey, um, expensive. Uh, he was driven, and he would just sit outside the consulate's office. Finally, I got a call from the State Department saying he cannot be denied a visa a fourth time or he'll never be able to come. Would you be willing to sign as as a guardian on his passport so that if anything goes awry, you're accountable? I said completely, yes. Uh, Brooke and I, my husband, we went to Rwanda. I called the consulate and said, where are we on Louis Gukimba's visa? She said he picked it up yesterday. We went to the village. We met in Gassini and unbeknownst to us, we found ourselves in a transfer ceremony with his parents. And I will never forget his beautiful mother, a woman of extraordinary spiritual power and grace, said to us, we are his biological parents. You are now his developmental parents. Will you see that Louis is educated? Will you see that his character maintains its strength so that he can come home to Rwanda and fulfill his destiny. I believe it's safe to say, having read your book since 9-11, you've rediscovered your poetry. But are you fully healed? Has this process brought you back together? You know, I think I live in a, cons- a perpetual state of brokenness. I don't know about you. But I think, you know, the question for me always is, how do we live in love with a broken heart? How do we stay open when everything around us asks us to close, to shut down, to be fearful, to not see the beauty that that surrounds us. And I think that was one of the things that I love so much about Lily Ye, is her sense of joy. Um, And she truly believes that joy comes out of suffering, that disturbance is what creates wisdom. And you certainly see that with the children in Rwanda. And, you know, I don't mean to project human qualities on animals, prairie dogs in particular, but, you know, I think about Mary Midgley, the British philosopher, and she says the ultimate act of anthropomorphism is to assume that animals don't feel, that they don't have emotions of love and loss, that they are not sentient beings. And having worked with prairie dogs, you know, all you have to do is watch those babies, you know, tumble around and, you know, make their little paws into fists and, you know, tease each other. And you think, you know, the world is a joyful place in spite of the suffering. And and that is what we embrace. You know, I remember Louis when um, we were at a particular monument um, to one of the worst uh, areas of the genocide. And he looked at me and he said, you know, this violence is not something outside of us but it's inside us, within each of us. And Lily's saying, capable of erupting at any moment. These were the discussions we were having. And then Louis made this gesture when he said, devils on one hand, angels on the other. How do we bring these two hands together in prayer and become human? You know, that's the question. And I think we're always struggling with that. 
because I think it is in the nature of, of humanity to, to break, to repair, to heal, and to love over and over and over again, to dare to love even when uh, we know the risks. Can I get you to read a passage for me? Certainly. You know, maybe I will read this one passage, James, that Louis shared with us. I should say, James, I wish Louis was here to tell his own story. So I really just want to convey my, my love and respect for him. I want to tell you a story, says Louis, as we sit on Mama Chakula's porch, where we met almost two years ago. There is a woman who was married to a pastor. It was a happy family. Some people say they were a family of six. Others say they were 11. The woman was away, and when she returned, she saw how the interhomway were butchering her children on the ground, along with her husband. After the war, the man who murdered her family came back from the Congo, and when the Gachacha courts called him to explain what he had been accused of, he said, I accept everything I have been charged with and from the depth of my heart, I apologize. The woman said, I saw what you did. I saw everything happen. I know you killed my family. I loved my children and my husband. I am alone. I have nothing. But I now choose to forgive you and take you into my home. You will live with me, and I will do whatever it takes to make you feel like my own son. Can you be in the same shoes with this woman, Louis asks. Louis then says, Rwanda is struggling with peace one person at a time. This is as hard as growing wheat on rock. We are finding our way toward unity and reconciliation on a walkway full of thorns, and we are walking barefoot. He stands up and walks over to the balcony that overlooks Kisini into the Congo where he was born. Louis says this, we are trying to forgive, but to forgive is to forget, and we cannot forget. Perhaps there is another word. I am searching for that word. Finding Beauty in a Broken World by Terry Tempest Williams is published by Pantheon Books, a division of Random House, and is available in hardcover wherever books are sold. The Joy Trip Project is a production of the Outdoor Professional Incorporated, James Mills producer. This edition was brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Keen Foundation, the charitable arm of Keen Footwear, maker of shoes, bags, and socks designed to take you wherever your hybrid life leads. Find out more at www.keenfootwear.com. If you've got a story, a favorite author, a documentary film, a work of art, or an indie musical group that's made a big difference in your world, please share it. Future productions of the Joy Trip Project will be widely developed from your suggestions, so write to us online at www.theoutdoorprofessional.com. You've been listening to The Joy Trip Project.